Public Radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Radio Catskill. I've always been really interested in science and Good evening and welcome to the local edition live from our studios in Liberty, New York. This is Radio Catskill. I'm your host, Jason Dolt. Tonight on the local edition, we talk to a local student who's already doing work with NASA. That'll be coming up. We also have the latest uh, edition of Delaware Currents, a regular check-in. First up, let's uh, start. We do have news from uh, New York today. What Governor Kathy Hochul was up to and uh, acknowledging multiple data points that show a dramatic increase in online hate speech and other threats against Jewish and Muslim communities New York Governor Kathy Hochul today announced $3 million to expand the state's threat assessment and management team model to all college campuses, as well as other steps the state is taking to combat hate, especially online. Many people are wrestling with the fear for the first time ever sometime in their lives of being the victim of a hate crime. I wish I could tell you these concerns were misplaced, but tragically the data all across America is showing that hate crimes have surged in the last six weeks. Since October 7th, there has been a 400% increase in threats against Jews, Muslims, and Arabs. And make no mistake, we've not stood idly by. My number one priority has been and will continue to be protecting the safety of our residents. The governor described a four-pillar plan to address rising hate that includes, one, strengthening security of physical locations, also making digital spaces secure by identifying by identifying online threats, calling out social media companies, and creating resources and toolkits for parents and schools. One of the biggest ways the state will make this happen is by expanding its TAM, or Threat Assessment Management Teams. The $3 million investment announced today will go to the state's Division of Homeland Security Emergency Services Domestic Terrorism Prevention Unit to expand TAM training and support to all colleges and universities statewide. They'll also be creating a centralized way to receive reports of threatening behavior as well as monitoring online threats. These teams are working to identify violent threats. They're not looking at your Instagram sunset posts or your tweets about your favorite football team, and they're not here to penalize anyone for their political views. They have a simple goal. Find out what's driving hateful behavior and intervene early before harm is done. And to give people who are being radicalized online an an off-ramp. Governor Hochul is joined on stage by Sheikh Musa Drama of Masjid al-Iman Mosque in Parkchester, New York. Governor, needless to say, Since New York is home to the largest Jewish and Muslim populations in the nation, New York must be made a state where peaceful coexistence, the embrace for diversity and celebrate diversity should be a global role model, not a sanctuary 
for bigots. And Eric Goldstein, CEO of UJA, United Jewish Appeal Federation of New York, also spoke. The governor is addressing all of the key areas that are the primary causes of the current crisis. And we have a crisis today in New York City alone. In the month of October, NYPD reported a 214% increase, 214% increase in anti-Semitic hate crimes. How do we address this challenge? Recognizing that our community, the Jewish community, the Muslim community, all deeply on edge in this moment. And uh, in other news in our listening area, Jayla Edwards, a senior from Liberty High School, secured a coveted spot in NASA's Science Mission Directorate, STEM Enhancement in Earth Sciences, a high school internship program. Again, it's NASA's Science Mission Directorate, STEM Enhancement in Earth Sciences, high school internship program, with over 2,000 applicants vying for positions Jayla emerged as one of the 95 students selected for this prestigious program held on site at the University of Texas at Austin's Center for Space Research. Tim Bruno spoke to Jayla Edwards recently about her experience and pivoting her interest in neuroscience to outer space. Here's that conversation. I've always been really interested in science and just the way the brain works and all that, but I was never really good at biology. So after a while, I was like, this just isn't going to work for me. So I started looking into other things that I did like, like coding and space, and I found aerospace engineering, and I thought, yeah, I think that's the one for me. Can you tell folks a little bit more about the NASA SEAS internship program? And SEAS stands for uh, STEM Enhancement in Earth Sciences at the Summer High School Internship Program. Basically, they put you through um, the first the first round of applications, and then they pick a couple people, and they go through another round of kind of um, just tree work, and they place you into your group. So I got chosen for the Mars Rover Research Utilization Group, but there were a ton of other ones. And a handful of the applicants are chosen for the on-site. The other ones are chosen for virtual. And for the on-site one, which is the one I participated in, it takes place in Texas at the UT Austin campus. And it's just a lot of work at the Center for Space Research, working on projects. But they also have a few fun things thrown in. So... We went to Six Flags and um, we went to like kind of like a David, we went to David Buster's and main event. We did skydiving. It was pretty cool. Yeah, it's a really competitive program, it looks like. And students from all over the country, how did you feel about being selected as one of the 95 students for this internship program? Honestly, I was a little confused at first just because I know that there were so many amazing applicants and when i got there these people they go to college or high schools that you graduate with an associate's degree but when i talked to some of the mentors and stuff they really wanted people who weren't as kind of in stem as a lot of other people are just to kind of push them into it more because the whole thing with um the seas internship is they want more and more uh teenagers of of all ethnicities 
from all over the place to come and be a part of STEM and diversify that field. Really the next generation. What was it like being there among other students who have like-minded things uh, that they want to do in terms of these types of careers and, and being part of C's? It was really nice. Because around here, if you say you want to be an aerospace engineer, you some people turn heads like, wow, that's crazy. But over there, like just about everyone wanted to do that. So it was really nice to talk to everyone about things that they were interested in, see that they were interested in the same things I were. It was, it was really nice. And you said you worked in the section that was devoted to the Mars Rover program. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you did? Yeah. So our team was supposed to design a mission for a Mars Rover. We, so we picked um, the, our landing spot, what instruments a rover would have, the traverse, and also what it would be doing. So because we were inside to resource utilization, our rover would help to collect some of the minerals that Mars has to offer and use it for other robot missions or rover missions or human missions. That is really cool, I have to say. Like, you're chosen for this uh, program. It's with NASA. And then they give you something to talk about and work on, I mean, with Mars. I mean, that sounds really awesome. Definitely what? (laughs) You are an ambassador for the SEAS program. What does that mean, and how do you implement that? Honestly, I'm not quite sure yet. They haven't sent us the information about it. But when we were over in Texas for the second time, they did say that we would be getting emails shortly about becoming ambassadors. They really just want people from um, our this area, more areas that they don't get as many applications from, to start applying. Because they want as many people as they can. They want to push as many people as they can into the STEM field. Your teachers, Mr. Doyle and Mrs. Nolan, seem to have had a big impact on you. How did they influence your interest in science and your decision to apply for this internship? And what did they think about you being selected and, and the project you got to work on? Um, I haven't really talked to Mr. Doyle lately, but Mrs. Nolan was definitely really proud. But yeah, they definitely helped a lot. Mr. Doyle made chemistry and just science in general really fun, and it made me feel like it was something that I could do in the future. And Ms. Nolan, she's the, one of the heads for the Science Olympiad program at our school. And being in Science Olympiad and learning more, researching more, gave me the, kind of the push to want to do the, want to apply and feel like I had enough background in science to apply for the internship. And what happens now? Are you sharing this project elsewhere and and telling other people about it? Sort of. So um, everyone in the SEAS internship also put their project through AGU and applied for the AGU conference that's happening in December. My team did get in to the AGU conference. I won't be going over to San Francisco um, to present there. But we have two projects going over because also through the on-site fees, they had us do another project um, about based around a Z-Cube. So they wanted to see how microgravity could affect certain things. So we decided to test how microgravity can affect the oscillation of a crystal. So our group's also presenting that at the AGU conference. What was the one thing that stuck with you the most? I mean, you're in Texas at the NASA Center. You're working on a Mars project or with like-minded individuals. What was the, the one thing that's kind of impacted you the most from this experience? I guess, I guess the people. Because there are so many different people there, but they, all, they were all so kind and they were all so nice. And if you think about 
how many people view kind of, I guess, intelligent minded people who go to private schools. You kind of view them in like, like this kind of nasty, mean light, but all these people were so polite. And they knew that although we didn't go to the same schools and we didn't, we don't have like the same kind of education, we were all there together and we all worked our hardest and we all just wanted to get things done. So that was really nice. And you're a Liberty High School senior. Am I correct in understanding that you were Dorothy in the Liberty Performing Arts production of The Wizard of Oz? Yeah. <laughs> so how do how does uh, performing arts and uh, science and NASA uh, how do those two things cross? What do you think you might pursue? I definitely want to pursue science. I love music and theater, all that stuff, but I'm not the greatest at it, and I don't see that being something that I'm going to do in the future but it's really nice to just step out on stage and perform and it's something that i really care about so it was really important to me that i did that at least up to high school it gives an outlet for that non-science side of your brain there right yeah definitely <laughs> well jayla it's really great to talk to you and i'm so proud of you i think the whole community is proud of you to uh have this experience and represent the area at NASA and we wish you luck for your future and your ultimate goal to work there. Thank you so much. And thank you to Jayla Edwards for talking to us and thank you to Tim Bruno for that interview. We're going to take a quick break here and when we come back we've got news from Delaware Currents Delaware River Basin Commission faced public outcry during two recent hearings regarding proposed amendments to its rules of procedure Meg McGuire founder of Delaware Currents tells us more when we come back you're listening to the local edition Winner of Excellence in Broadcasting Awards from the New York State Broadcasters Association. Radio Catskill. Listen local. Support for Radio Catskill comes from JeffWorks Office Solutions, located right on Main Street in Jeffersonville, New York. A newly renovated, pet-friendly office space that rents by the day, week, or month with hot desks, sound-insulated rooms, Wi-Fi, modern amenities, and 24-hour secure access. Online at jeffworksjville.com. And welcome back to the local edition. Delaware Currents is a news project tells the story of the Delaware River across its entire length. And the Delaware River Basin Commission faced public outcry during two recent hearings regarding the proposed amendments to its rules of practice and procedure. While the DRBC deemed the changes as necessary updates, critics, including members of the Delaware Riverkeeper Network, expressed outrage. Radio Catskills' Patricio Rabio spoke to Meg McGuire, founder and publisher of Delaware Currents, about this issue. The DRBC is one of the few outfits that have control over our water quality and quantity that actually holds public hearings. Very often the states can do things without public hearings. The DRBC becomes a, a sort of a hot spot for conversation. One of the most controversial, certainly in the eyes of many environmentalists, decisions that the DRC made, and remember this is the DRBC, the commission, which is the four governors or their representatives, was that they allowed a port, a second port, to be give, if to be built in a place called Gibbstown, New, Jer New Jersey, which would be the port from which 
LNG could be exported around the world. And this port became important because an outfit called New Fortress Energy came up with a plan that they would take fracked gas from the fracking fields outside of the watershed, process it in a town called Wyalusing, which is way up in the back of beyond, and then transport that gas, that, that fracked gas, either by train or by truck, all the way down to Gibbstown, which is on the other side of the river south of Camden. I think it might even be, I think it might be our little north of Wilmington. So it's quite a far way. All sorts of people were um, horrified at that, which is because the gas, once it's highly compressed, it is kept in these hopefully trustworthy steel containers. But if anything were to happen, the trains, for example, got the uh, nickname bomb trains um, because they would explode, causing significant damage and perhaps loss of life, especially since these trains or trucks were planned to go through populated areas. It was on the fringes of Philadelphia, which is that's a relatively populated area. So this decision attracted a lot of attention. That decision was originally made in 2019-ish, and the Delaware Riverkeeper, who's one of the one of the weapons they use, one of the tools at their disposal, the Riverkeeper herself is a lawyer. She knows all about filing suits and stuff like that. She asked at that point for a judicatory hearing, which is when an outside person comes in and examines whether the commission made the right decision to allow this. The hearing officer decided that everything was cool, right? Time goes on, and the thing that sparked this particular episode, I think, was at some point in 2022, the permit that the DRBC had given to Gibbstown, the new fortress folks, and the, the building of this, this second dock at Gibbstown expired. And the executive director extended it. And, of course, what happens is that the executive director then gets the extension approved by the, DB, the DRBC. So he extended in June 2022. At the next quarterly meeting, the representatives of the four governors approved it. That's 2022. The Delaware Riverkeeper Network did a FOIA on that decision, discovered that it was calling a unilateral decision by Steve Tambini, the director, to extend the permit. Then they brought that decision to a New Jersey federal court and eventually, sorry, that district court. That ended in March of 2023, siding with the decisions of the DRBC, right? So now, on one hand, if I can editorialize here for a moment, I'm a little horrified by the Kidstown idea. I don't like the idea of liquid gas bomb trains or trucks traversing a populated area, right? But the Delaware Riverkeeper was fiercely opposed to this and clearly thought that there was a toehold in how Steve Tambini made that original decision to extend. But once the DRBC commissioners approved it and then the state, the district court case found in favor of the DRBC, there really isn't much to go on. It also should be said that there are a lot of people in the four states that are very sensitive to environmental issues, and not just the riverkeeper, but lots of other people. 
But the truth of the matter is, the governors, even though they are Democrats and in some ways are certainly sensitive to environmental issues, they are also very sensitive to uh, economic viability. And southern New Jersey, especially towards the um, Delaware River, is economically a little on the tough side. In fact, it reminds me in some ways about the Upper River, up in towards Hancock and stuff. This is not a place where there's a lot of industry. So I think the New York legislature especially was really hot on getting this port approved. If the New Jersey governor chooses to, he can support that, and then the other governors generally respecting each other probably go along with it. That's all complete supposition on my part, but that's what makes sense. Right. The What the DRBC was doing... When I talked to Mr. Tambini, I was asking him about why, and he said that essentially the rules governing how he can operate in that universe were fuzzy. So what they went, were doing was were going back into their, God, it's just piles of bureaucraties and documents and things that govern every time someone at the DRBC takes a breath, and they wanted to make it clearer. And I will be honest that when I first tried to read on the DRBC website what those changes were and why, I was like, what? This is supposed to be less fuzzy? But eventually what happened is that uh, Mr. Tambini essentially said, if the commission has already approved a project, the DRBC executive director will only extend the project if nothing has changed. And then when we were talking, he repeated that line, if nothing has changed. In other words, Nothing at the site has changed. Uh, state or uh, other rules haven't changed. There's no been no directive from somewhere else. There's nothing in the project itself that has changed. So the the DRBC, I think, approached that as we're tidying things up. But of course, the Riverkeeper used the public hearing as an opportunity to express their anger at the rule change, and I don't really think that the rules changed to the degree that the Riverkeeper characterized them. The Riverkeeper routinely goes goes to the DRBC. They were particularly concerned at this mm-hmm. public hearing about the public records change. And that is a secondary matter, which is that the DRBC has its own rules of how it deals with public records requests. In that discussion of how it's supposed to deal with public records requests, it used a shorthand, which we've all used, for the Freedom of Information Act, the FOIA. But the DRPC is not a federal agency. They realized that perhaps that shouldn't be in the public records requests. So they took those not germane references to FOIA out, but the process for getting a public records request in and granted has not changed. So there is less change than the comments of the Riverkeeper would suggest. And the thing that's great about the Keeper and also one of the other people that spoke was Doug O'Malley, who is the State Director of Environment in New Jersey, was concerned about these rule changes. The people who pay attention to this stuff and who make a noise about it, they are, they are important to the health of the river. But it's not always the case that every time they express deep concern that it's necessarily this thing that's the problem. I think the thing that's the problem underneath this suggestion 
or this attitude from the Delaware Riverkeeper is more that they were doing everything they could to somehow halt the Gibbstown project. Because it makes it harder for the public to get information. But remember, much like the thing that we were talking about before, there is no difference to what will happen if I go to the DRBC with a records request. They will handle that records request exactly the same way before or after this resolution gets passed by the commissioners. It is a reference to FOIA. It's only, and it was, I actually went through the redlined version side by side. Mm. Oh, my God. And after my eyes stopped bleeding, I recognized that is, in fact, it's almost if you could imagine FOIA was an adjective, not the process. The actual process remains the same. And the process, they're, they're really pretty good about it. They mostly grant most records requests as far as I, as far as my, um, my habit with them and my understanding of them. Right. Now, there's all sorts of, there's all sorts of problems you can have with the DRBC. My big problem is that they're, generally speaking, slow to act. But then again, remember that the DRBC is the four governors, and the four governors have to decide when it's appropriate for them to act. It took them, what, a decade to enact of a, a, a fracking ban? Um, sometimes they're slow, and it's, they're certainly slow with the dissolved oxygen levels in the river that need to be raised in order to protect the endangered sturgeon. But they obey their own rules, and there's a lot of them. You mentioned in your article that either Doug O'Malley or some folks think that things might be done in secret because of the way right. things are going? I do not see that. Okay. Um, the public records process and procedure that the DRBC follows now will be unchanged. The reason why they wanted to take the FOIA reference out is, again, one of these little sort of things, snag. The DRBC is not a federal agency, and therefore, using a reference to the Federal Freedom of Information Act is misapplied and apparently causes confusion. There is no change to the public's access to records, no changes to the Commission's interpretation or application of the regulations, and the Federal Freedom of Information Act, which is inaccurate, is dropped but does not apply to the process and procedures that the DRBC has had in place and will have in place when that FOIA reference is eliminated. And uh, trust me, if I see something that's a bit stinky here, I will certainly raise a fuss about it. But generally speaking, the DRBC has a science body, the science and engineering body, that makes all sorts of appropriate using science and the best technology available, make suggestions for certain things to the commissioners. The commissioners are the one that decides things. And the commissioners are the ones that will decide whether this is appropriate or not. And one of the things that one of the speakers talked about is we trust the commissioners more than we trust the executive director. The truth is the commissioners are political animals. They respond to pressure. That may be one of the reasons why generally they are careful about environmental issues. But as far as Gibbstown is concerned, it was a decision made likely, again, I don't know, likely to promote the economic well-being of that part of New Jersey 
and likely the other governors went along with it because they are political. The DRBC is not. Now, the public hearing has, has passed already. It was on November 13th. Written comments are accepted until November 30th, right? Yes. yes. Okay. Where can folks go to make their, their concerns known? If people have access to a computer, at the bottom of the story on the Delaware Current website, that they'll give, get you a link to the DRBC's website and to the whole process that you need to do for written comment. There's online written comment, and they also accept not online written comment. Let me just see if I'm actually on that computer, my computer now. The uh, written comments. Yeah, there's a link to where to where to send it online, and the address if you're not online is Commission Secretary, DRBC, Post Office Box. 7360 West Trenton, New Jersey, 08628. Anyone that has access to a computer can certainly find that on the DRBC websites, but I would just try to enunciate it for folks that might not have access to a computer. Meg, before we go, is there anything else? You touched on a lot, and it said some things you spoke to me about are somewhat troubling, but anything else before we go? Only to wish you and your listeners a very happy Thanksgiving. You too, Meg. We're talking to Meg McGuire, from Del- the founder and publisher of Delaware Currents, talking about the DRBC proposed rule changes that drew some scrutiny and criticism. Thank you so much for talking to us and letting us know about this issue. Okie dokie. Thanks, Patricio. Bye-bye. All right. Thank you, Patricio. That's going to do it for the local edition. We will be back tomorrow evening to do it again right here in the 6 p.m. time. And Tim Bruno will be here at 10 a.m. with Radio Chatskill. We've got the daily coming up next. Rain and snow this evening. The snow will change to all rain overnight. One to three inches of snow is expected. Overnight low down near 30. Rain showers in the early end tomorrow. Overcast later on high of 47. This is Radio Catskill.